Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I didn't have a good role model or someone to say, uh, here's a different perspective on it all. And instead, I, I so hated this part of myself. And I was going through puberty and trying to stop it at the same time. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I am a millionaire. It's a weird thing to hear, right? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. She can't be dead. And need to talk about more. He will not leave me alone. He thinks I am his uh, love goddess. I'm Anna Sale. When Daniel K. Isaac landed his role as a hedge fund analyst on the Showtime show Billions, he didn't have to go far to learn about people who work on Wall Street. He was already waiting their tables. It was a steakhouse in the basement of a building that had a lot of finance uh, folks in there. Oh, and, really? um, <laughs> and they started recognizing me a little, but mostly the show. And then I, I was sort of unable to do my job as they wanted to talk more than they would to, a, uh, to their server. And um, and I could be like, help me understand this thing that I don't. The jargon I, I, in the show. Yeah, but even now I'm sort of like, it's it's fun to to get to learn about that world. When he was young, Daniel's world was very different. He was raised by a single mom in Koreatown in Los Angeles. They didn't have much money. He also didn't have a lot of friends his own age. I'd skipped the second grade and started school early, something such that I was always two years younger than my peers. And so that always Mm. sort of offset me from um, the people I was around. And and I think that probably relates to uh, always feeling older or, or wanting to be older. His mom immigrated from South Korea in the 1980s and is a devout Christian. They spent a lot of time in church when Daniel was growing up. The one I was born into was the one my mom and um, biological dad got married in. And uh, I would later find out, uh, pretty recently, a couple years ago, that my my biological father cheated on my mother with the head pastor's daughter. um, And that affair became public. And that's the reason why he left my mom. But my mom continued to go to that church once a week so that I could see him once a week. That was the arrangement that she had created um, for me to have some point of contact with him until um, she tried remarrying for a short spell um, when I was in fifth grade. And that, that's what led us to move and my mom to find another, another church, which I would like to think was better for her so that she's not going to the point of, of such gossip and um, you know, a, abuse in a way, at least emotionally. When did you start to get the sense that you are gay? I would dial up internet researching porn. (laughs) Uh So whatever that was, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. Um, I just remember looking at pornography and then um, going towards the gay sections and thinking, oh, this is where I would rather be. And that, I guess, almost applied a label to it. But it wasn't until, you know, kids made fun of each other or bullied each other or there was this fear of being labeled gay that I um, 
that I that I put that upon myself. So it was pretty early. Um, Who did you tell? I didn't tell anyone at first. And then um, I remember one of my first best friends in high school um, also had a single mom. And he was he came over to and we were on my computer and he was looking something up. And I didn't know how to delete browser history yet. And it was gay browser history that came up as he was typing in some uh, website. And, and that became the point in which I, that was our access to each other, that we could sort of come out to each other. Um, and, and he lived a, a block away, and we were both in uh, water polo and swimming together. And so then we became these closeted kids together. And then um, I, I would eventually tell people at church, um, and I would voluntarily uh, um, go through conversion therapy with them. And, and while I was doing that therapy, in, in big quotes, I, um, I came out to my mother under the pretense that, um, that I was fighting it, that it was a sin, it was a choice. And I, um, I was already taking the steps to ensure that I wouldn't be that for the rest of my life. Daniel spent three years in conversion therapy until he finished high school at 16 and left home to go to college in San Diego. He decided to study theater and found a supportive group of gay friends away at school. Pretty soon, he decided he was done trying to fight his sexuality, and he came out to his mom again. And she uh, she was very upset and disowned me, uh, quote-unquote, um, uh, because I told her I wasn't, I didn't consider this a sin anymore. Uh, whether or not I even fully believed that at the time, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And, um, and I was doing a show at the time, and I remember she still came to it and, um, and paraded this sort of um, uh, image of a supporting and and lovely mother and and brought flowers and and she she was wonderful in public and the moment we were alone um she i remember pulled out a bible that was covered in post-its and each post-it was marking where i had sinned or committed a sin whether it was obeying your parents or of course, um, issues relating to homosexuality or or passages about bestiality or pedophilia or whatever and I just remember this Bible of, of post-it notes, and we, we had this sort of screaming fight where she, she officially disowned me. And, um, and I lived in a dorm with eight or nine other guys, and, um, and they were, a lot of them were home and sort of heard it and, and kind of like rubbed my back as I was crying or something. And, um, and, and then I just had to like figure it out, and I... I went to financial aid and was like, uh, I'm, I've been disowned for being gay. And they were like, fill out this paperwork and here are, you know, here's a therapist um, that you should go see. And <laughs> Your financial aid office had a referral for a therapist? They, uh, yeah, they were like, uh, we either we highly encourage or it is mandatory to go into therapy. Whatever it was, it put me into therapy at the time. And, um, and uh, I, I'm so thankful for that and, and for that for those sessions um, during that time. Um, 
And when you say disown, your mother, you had no financial support from your mother no. at that point. No. Uh, the only thing that she did do, which was a clue for me at the time, was um, she continued to pay for my cell phone bill. Like, she and I were on a family plan. And um, and while tuition and uh, my life expenses I, I would figure out on my own from 16 onwards, uh, the cell phone she did continue to pay until I could afford it. And so while I had been disowned, it... Um, it always never felt like an option that we would never be a part of each other's lives. Um, and she still hopes I'll, I'll come around. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not leading her on into believing that that will happen anytime soon. But, um, but we try to relate to each other in other ways. Have you and your mom talked about that fight with the Post-its since? Yeah, we've acknowledged it. Um, it's something that just always comes up. You know, she's a single parent and I'm an only child and we are essentially each other's only family. And yet fundamentally we are in disagreement about this one thing regarding sexuality and faith. And uh, and who you are. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, she likes to joke about it now or, or fight about it. And I sort of have to take it in stride. And, um, and, that, and that first therapist was very good about... Um, of of laying out, you can either be black, white, or gray about this. You can you can have your your life in which you are this out and proud homosexual who doesn't have a relationship with your mother because she is so fundamentally against this aspect of yourself. You can um, be on the opposite spectrum where you uh, either go back in the closet or you do choose to quote unquote fight this thing and appease your mother and have a relationship with her that way. Or you can find some sort of gray middle ground in which uh, it requires perhaps more compromise from you as the child. And so uh, it, I opted for this slightly trickier, but um, sometimes very funny and um, weird uh, relationship with my mother that takes a lot out of me at times. I, there, this isn't some like... Uh, uh, easy, um, enlightened exercise. It, it is a constant negotiation. Um, gray is hard. Yes, gray is hard. <laughs> yes. Coming up, what Daniel isn't willing to compromise on as both he and his mom get older. I hope to be able to adopt and, and have a kid or two and... and be able to have, uh, you know, the different family unit than, um, than I was raised to believe was right or whole or, or good. I won't let her perspective deter me from it. It's Katie, one of the producers here at the show. This conversation with Daniel K. Isaac was recorded right before Anna went out on maternity leave. And since it's been a couple of months now since Anna gave birth to her beautiful baby girl, Eve, we thought it was about time that we checked in with her to see how things are going. Hello. Hi. How's Eve? It's been really nice. It's been like such a gift to get to be home, not just with this new little baby, but also with her big sister. Anna's got a two-year-old at home, in addition to her newborn. And I was curious about what she's been enjoying in the few precious moments of free time that she does have. 
I've gotten back into exercising and so I'm catching up on some of the podcast series that I missed. And right now I'm listening to the startup season about um, charter schools, which I've found to be really interesting and complicated. Um, I'm really loving high maintenance and Broad City right now. And I think it's just sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's like my my New York City alter ego um, getting it fixed. Yeah. And you mentioned you have started exercising again. Like, what type of exercise are you getting into? I am running and jogging, um, you know, sometimes faster and sometimes slower. <laughs> I don't know if you're taking Eve on the runs with you or not, but I've, I found in maternity leave, like, just having a, you know, a half hour here or there to get out and exercise just kind of like gave me some headspace. Yeah. Yeah. I mostly, I go on walks with Eve, but I'm, when I'm exercising, I'm trying to keep it a kid-free zone just for, just for 30 minutes, um, which takes a lot of planning, but uh, (laughs) it's worth it. Anna will be back in just a few more months. And in a few weeks, we'll announce who's going to be filling in until then. Listen out for that announcement coming your way soon. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Daniel K. Isaac moved to New York to become an actor, he worked a series of what he called survival jobs for eight years. He was a waiter, a personal assistant, a bartender, a caterer. He was only able to quit his last restaurant job two years ago, and he still lives modestly. I have a roommate. Um, I'm in Astoria in the same apartment I found when I first moved here. Uh, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. I met a guy at a club who was moving to L.A., and uh, and he probably wanted to go out, and I just wanted his apartment, and I got it. <laughs> and how old were you when you arrived in New York City? 20. And I was gifted a... Um, on my 18th birthday, my friend Jin gave me his driver's license, um, so that I I could be over 21 for bars and clubs um, because he was uh-huh. Korean American as well, and then and that um, was enough. That was enough for the bouncers. That was enough. <laughs> it actually got worse because it expired almost right before I moved, and so my other friend Al Evangelista, who wasn't even Korean American, he was Filipino American. He gave me his ID, and and that's how I made it to 21 before I was actually 21 in New York City. And he and I look nothing alike, and yet I would just make sure I didn't have an Asian or Asian American bouncer, and I I would be fine. Um, <laughs> I was completely fine. What was your dating life like in your 20s when all of a sudden you're across the country from your mother? Mm. You are proud to be gay. Mm -hmm. 
what was it like? I think I think the pride thing is a, or at least was a constant negotiation for a while. Um, but I I would sort of I I fell in love uh, very quickly with someone who then had to move to France to teach English, and then I I dated a guy who was in the closet for our the period of our two or three year relationship and that also felt uh like a compromise i think in that uh i was trying to live my my truth my pride my my um shameless self and and he wasn't wasn't quite there and and yet i stuck with that relationship for a while it must have been hard yeah i think uh you know I, you uh, i think gay people are are warned not to date someone in the closet and i just i didn't listen and um would you go out in public together we would uh the rule i made was that he couldn't be closeted in my world but what that ended up doing was sort of um segmenting our lives I had my friend circle and he had his. And when he entered mine, he could be perhaps more uh, true, in at least in that uh, aspect of his identity. Um, and then when he was in his world, I I participated as a a friend and at one point a roommate. And, um, and that uh, wasn't exactly the best truth to be living um, for either of us. And... Uh, uh, I think I'm still, you know, I'm I'm just searching for what is, uh, what is the best match or pairing, whether it's for marriage or children, and that will be sort of my next uh, act of rebellion or or act of truth um, in being able to create a family unit that is so against what my my mother and my upbringing um, could ever possibly imagine. Have you talked to your mom about wanting to be a parent? Oh, yeah. Um, I have a friend uh, that I met right before I moved out here, um, B.D. Wong. Um, when I first moved to the city, he would host these Saturday night dinners with his son and his friend group that are family. And my mother came to town once, and he invited her um, as a way for her to see this um, definitely not heteronormative family unit that um, that was full of joy and love. And while BD was divorced from the other father of his son, um, here they were uh, creating family and um, friendship and fostering love. And and, um, and she she came and witnessed that and stayed very um, very silent through the entire evening, you know. And and maybe we did dishes together or something at one point. And she. She said, "I feel, I feel so bad for that kid um, because he has to be raised in that family unit." She she didn't see any of the joy. She didn't see any of the light or the love, and she felt such extreme sorrow at what I had found such beauty in, and um, and that that was very hard for me to to navigate and you know um when the like it gets better campaign came out um uh i've always heard you know it'll get better when you are married and i've also heard it'll get better when you or if you want to have grandkids um for her and that was sort of the 
demonstration that maybe it wouldn't get better. You know, like it, that that phrase has never really worked for me uh, because I don't I don't think she would at least you know in who she is today and what she has said um, she wouldn't participate in that family unit. Have you had periods where when your mother is is honest with you about those strict lines for her mm-hmm. where uh, where it has felt actually too hard to have a close relationship with her, to have her in your life? Yeah. I, um, you know, um, if, if the phone calls ever got too hard once I was living in New York, I would just not, I would just not call her or, or, you know, pretend I was busy. And, um, and it, it really was, it wasn't until my friend's, that I'd um, I'd meet up with after a phone call, and I'd be like, "My mother just said this," or or like, "I'm really upset right now because this is what just happened," and um, and oftentimes they would they would laugh, and and it was their laughter and their perspective on the absurdity or the inadvertent comedy of it all. It wasn't until I could. Um, witness this other perspective and experience how other people related to my relationship with my mother that it it actually helped me re-engage with her and find find more compassion or love for her and um, <laughs> there are times where um, if I'm going through something hard I have actually said to my mother um, I need you to be a human mother to your your son right now and and try at least for a tiny period of time to relate to me in that way and not not through any religious filter i just need my my mother and and she can do that for maybe 2.5 minutes and and <laughs> and i will take them you know like like in my most recent breakup i was like you know this is sad this is what i'm going through and she was like yeah you know four and a half years is a long time i can see how that uh, could hurt um, you know, take care of yourself, go eat something warm. Um, you know, when your father left me, I had a hard time too. And, and that's enough, I guess, you know, like that's what I can hold on to. And then, you know, after 2.5 minutes, it turns into, but you're actually taking a step closer to God and it's all for the best. And this is all part of God's greater plan for you to become a Christian. And so, you know, I just, I just, I just edit, I'll, I'll take that, that, that two minutes. That's actor Daniel K. Isaac. The new season of Billions started just this past weekend. You can watch it on Showtime. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Keegan Zima for his help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. After Daniel's first serious boyfriend in New York moved to France, he started dating again and soon discovered he might have a type. I would then fall in love with someone who moved to China for work, and the guy after that moved to Germany for a year. 
And so I remember one wedding speech I gave where I was like, if you want to have an international chapter in your life, gentlemen, date me and something about me will send you to the other side of the world for you to pursue your passions there. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.